Good evening. I am so, so glad that you're here tonight. Folks, we're coming to the home stretch. Tonight is April 12th, and we're going to cover letters 26 and 27. Next Wednesday, April 19th, will be 28 and 29, and then that's it. Y'all, April 26th will be 30th and 31st. So April 26th, we will wrap this thing up. So we are right there. I am so proud of each and every one of you for enduring to the finish line. Don't give up now. You're so close. Lean into the tape. And I'll begin with a word of prayer. I think that's the only announcement uh, I have, just that we're, we're close. We're uh, just uh, three sessions left, including uh, tonight's. And um, uh, let's pray, and we'll get right to it. Because it's only two letters, I'm sure we'll get through them and then have plenty of time for questions. <laughs> Dear Holy Father, we give you thanks, O oh Lord. We thank you for uh, the joy of getting to worship corporately. Good Friday services and the uh, uh, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday morning, just getting to be in your house with your people. And Lord, we thank you for uh, getting to uh, see harvest, lives crossing over from darkness to light, death to life. Thank you, O oh God, for what you're doing, what you're continuing to do. We thank you, O oh Lord, as we look forward to the baptisms that are coming up in the, the coming Sundays. We thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in our Wednesday night studies. And I pray, oh God, uh, for anyone here tonight that they would benefit from these letters. Uh, I pray you'd open our hearts, open our minds. Uh, these aren't the easiest uh, letters to understand. So God, we ask for your wisdom. We ask humbly for wisdom. Thank you for taking care of us. And thank you for uh, this beautiful weather that we're enjoying. We treat every day as a gift that's come from you, Lord, because you're good and you know how to give good gifts to your children. Guide us now, guide our thinking, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Letter 26 and letter 27. Here we go. Letter 26 and 27 are, and uh, I've already had discussions with a few of you, you have affirmed this. These are just tough letters. They're difficult to understand. There's no way around it. But like a lot of things in life, if it's tough, pay attention, it's Profitable. There's a lot here. There's a lot to mine from this. So the question is, how can we glean the most from these two letters? Letter 26, I thought if we did a little bit of teaching before we read the letter uh, and understand what it's about. Uh, uh, well, let me just do it this way. Letter 26 is about the difference between these three words, these three concepts. The first is unselfishness. Okay? The second is the second. The second and third are both love, but they're very specific in how they mean love, right? Just like we know, there's ambiguity in the English word love, and so uh, Screwtape's going to want to play on that. There's unselfishness. Then there's love, and by love, he really means um, being in love, infatuation, enchantment. He calls it. How many of you know what I'm talking about right now? Okay, you were supposed to raise your hand. Yeah, yeah, all right, all right. Okay, you get the point. Infatuation. Everybody understand? So that's uh, not exactly the kind of love that we think of when we think of, you know, the kind of love Christians are called to have. And that's the highest. That's the real form of love. And that is, definition here, he means, and this is, he uses an interesting word, and he's wise to use it. Here, he uses the word, Charity. Yeah. Okay, so unselfishness, there's three categories. Un unselfishness, which love, and by that he means infatuation, and then this, love, uh, by which he means charity. I'll put it to you like this. This letter will make no sense to you if you do not carefully define these three concepts and understand exactly how screw tape is using them in letter 26. On the other hand, if you do get a handle on how he's using these things, um, the letter should suddenly come to life in a new way and make a lot of sense to us. At first, all three of these things, by the way, sound great. Uh, I mean, who would be against unselfishness? And uh, who would be against being in love? Now, we would all say that, that the love he defines as charity is higher than being in love, but still, there's nothing wrong with being in love. 
So, so what, what's the problem with these things? At first they might, yeah, they all sound great. We think of, we think of unselfishness as the opposite of being selfish. So that's a good thing. We think of being head over heels in love as infatuation. Okay. And, and we think of charity most of the time when we think of charity, we think of welfare. All right. Giving to the poor. That's charity. Not so fast. If that's what, if that's how you're defining these three things, the letter will make very little and probably no sense. So let's get a handle on what these things are. Let's actually start with charity. When he talks about love as charity, you might say this is the highest form of love. It doesn't mean he's not here talking about welfare. He's not talking about charity in the sense of giving to the poor. Though that is the same root. That's where we get the idea of charity. No, no, no. What he's talking about is concern for the good of the other person, regardless of the cost the good, the benefit of this other person. They're, they have a need, that other person's need is going to be met. I thought some examples would help us as we walk through examples of these things. So imagine with me, a person hears about a tragedy. Uh, from time to time, this happens. A kid at school, their house burns down. And it's like right before Christmas, let's say. And so this person's heart, their heart breaks for that kid. They don't even know the kid, but they think about their own kids. And so they give an anonymous donation and all they care about, they don't care about getting any recognition, they don't care, all they care about is that kid and making sure that kid gets his needs met and just wants to be a blessing. They want to make sure that kid gets the blessing. That's the kind of love Lewis would call charity. It's sacrificial, but the key there is the motivation is pure. It's focused on the kid. Let's make sure the kid has what they need. Like the care is for the kid. Now, let's use another example. It can still be charity, even if you're not super happy about it, but you do it out of love. You don't want to unload the dishwasher, but you know it blesses your wife. And so you do it. Now, that's still technically love is charity, but only, only, and watch this, we'll talk about the same example in other categories, only if it remains focused on helping the other person. So you're not necessarily happy about it, you're tired, but love is a verb, and you're going to show love in this way because your wife will be blessed by this. So the focus is on, on, on the, the good of this other person, okay? Unselfishness, let's come back to unselfishness. Let's leave infatuation for last. That's love that is charity. Unselfishness. You might say, well, that's an unselfish thing to do. Uh, unselfishness is putting the focus of a good deed on yourself. Watch now. Making the true motivation for doing the good deed your own humility and righteousness. So it's sneaky here. Unselfishness is really all about you not being selfish. See how unselfish I am? Right? Ironically, uh, it looks like love, but the fact that the focus is not on the other person, even in the word. It has nothing to do with the other person. It's about your virtue and how you're unselfish. Uh, do you remember how, that, that screw tape's way, do you remember how when we talked about humility, ironically, if, if a person is starting to develop in humility, screw tape comes in and says, then make him proud of the fact that he's humble. <laughs> you see? It's really the same principle here. Let's go back to my two illustrations and see if I can uh, 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 tease this out a little. In un unloading the dishwasher, if you keep the focus, you're doing it, it the motivation is for the good of this other person, <clears throat> then it's love or charity. How does unselfishness unload the dishwasher? Unselfishness unloads the dishwasher and thinks, I'm going to do this because, you know, that's the kind of person I am, always giving to others. Always helping out others. I am unselfish. Notice how in that illustration, I never once mentioned the wife. Sorry, the person, hypothetically. Never mentioned the wife. <laughs> Got a little too on the nose there. <laughs> yeah. Or go back to the poor kid whose house burned down. So this person who is loved, so heartbroken and, and, and focused on the kid, on selfishness, they give not because they care about the kid, but because they... You know, she really wants to get into the holiday spirit and wants to congratulate herself. She would never say that out loud, but maybe, just maybe, she would let it slip on social media and share that GoFundMe link just to sort of, you know, 
humble brag a little, right, about how unselfish she is. And so she might put a, a post out there that says, listen, this is really on my heart, you know, and I hope you can join me. Hashtag unselfishness, right? That, if you get that, if you start to, and, and these are silly examples maybe, but you see, like, if you can get in the hang of understanding, that's what he means by unselfishness. The focus is not actually on the object of the beloved. It's on self and how not selfish I am. Love charity is different. Motivation is pure. It's on that other person. Now, I haven't forgotten about this term, love. Being in love, enchantment, infatuation. This really looks like this, but it's not. It's just infatuation. So, listen. This is doing the acts of love, not because you're doing charity. I mean, the motivation of charity. It looks like this. But you do it because you're in the dating phase of the relationship. And you unload the dishwasher because you're head over heels in love. This is not focused on the good of the beloved. This is, no, I'm going to do the dishes, snookums. No, you're not. I'm going to do them, honey bun. No, I'm going to do them, right? No, me, right? This is, uh, so you're doing good deeds and it looks like charity. But in fact, uh, so... The problem with this is that is not sustainable over 20 years of marriage, except in mine. But the, in 20 years later, the dishes will still be there, and eventually it will have to be determined. And this is very important to understand the letter, and then we'll dive right into it. Let's understand. Right now, Screwtape's patient is in this phase. He's dating his girlfriend. They're in the infatuation. And here's what he knows. Fast forward this thing. This is going to turn into one, this is going to turn into one of two things. Because right now, he's doing all this charity. As in, it really, he's just in love. It's going to turn into one of two things. Will it become what God wants? Will it head toward charity? Or will it head over here toward this unselfishness, which is what Screwtape wants? See? That's what he wants to know. Will it blossom into real love, a.k.a. charity? Or will it fester into unselfishness? Again, it looks like love. That ladies and gentlemen, is how these terms are being used. If you understand that, this chapter will make a lot more sense. So any questions on how Lewis or Screwtape is using these three words? If we're clear on that, the, the whole th thing will go much more smoothly. And we, I, I even put a note in here, go slow in this letter. We may even have to break it down. Normally I try to read a large chunk, but we may just have to do sentence by sentence. I, I think it'll be worth it. Any questions on those three categories? Or how they're being used? It's sneaky, right? Because you think unselfishness would be a good thing. We think of it as a good thing, but you'll see what he's up to. All right, here we go. Now that you understand how these words are used, my dear Wormwood, yes, courtship is the time for sowing those seeds which will grow up 10 years later into domestic hatred. What? How can that be? It's a funny line, right? I mean, I, I thought... I mean, look, I know we have some newlywed couples in this class. I know we have a young man who's engaged. Courtship is the time for sowing those seeds which will grow up ten years later to domestic hatred. We're so happy for you guys, you know? It's great. It's great. It's great. So you guys are wondering, wait, what? Look at you, you're so in love. What do you mean Screwtape is trying to sow seeds into this young, lovely couple? And look, I mean, he's got stars in his eyes. This guy's about to get married in June. You guys are literally looking. They're not literal stars. But Screwtape's now trying to sow seeds? How can this be when, when two people dating are in such love? Here's how. Remember, when you're in love, and this couple is, and they're remaining pure before marriage, because remember, the, the, the two... In, in the, the patient has two choices for the biblical sexual ethic, complete purity and singleness, complete faithfulness in marriage. And so he's honoring that biblical sexual ethic. So those wonderful acts of kindness that you do for each other look like charity, but it may just be infatuation. That's exactly what Screwtape says. Read. The enchantment of unsatisfied desire produces results, which the enchantment means uh, the intoxicating feeling of being in love. They're under an enchantment. They're under love's spell right now which produces results which the humans can be made to mistake for the results of charity. And there it is. You're unloading the dishwasher, but why? Is it because you've truly come to the deep levels of self-sacrificial love for one another? Or are you just head over heels of puppy love? Avail yourself, Screwtape writes. Avail yourself. Make use of 
the ambig ambiguity in the word love. And that's it. See, that's really true, isn't it? The English word love can mean lots of things. Hey, I love football. I love God. I love barbecue. And I love Jackie. Those things do not, love is not meant in the same way in any of those connotations, right? So play on that. Let them think, listen to the sentence, let them think they've solved by love, this love, problems that they in fact have only waived or postponed under the influence of the enchantment, this love. While at last you have your chance to foment, that word means to stir up the problems in secret and render them chronic. That means ongoing and permanent. The grand problem is that of unselfishness. Here it comes, this counterfeit love, which you guys already know how he's using the word, so this should uh, ring a little clearer. Note, once again, the admirable work of our philological arm in substituting the negative unselfishness for the enemy's positive charity. What on earth is this sentence? Philology is the study of language. This sentence is not as complicated as you might think. And Satan here is saying, look, the demons are out to twist and pervert everything. So we would understand, and understandably so, he twists and perverts language all the time. And in this case, he has sought to twist the Lord's command to love your neighbor as yourself. Remember the great commandment in Matthew 22? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, on these two commands hang all the law and the prophets. In other words, you could sum up the Old Testament. Love, your, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. He's saying, watch what the enemy did. They have substituted love for unselfishness. You and I might go, that's not that big a difference. Love is unselfish. Love is kind. Love, ah! And he says, and that's what we've done so secretly. That's what our philological arm has done so subtly. It's a subtle change, but it's just enough different that it works to his favor. Why? It's subtle. But go and love, he says, we've substituted a positive command for a negative one. Watch this. Go and love is a thou shalt. Be unselfish is a thou shalt not. Those are two totally different things. Be unselfish is a thou shalt not. Okay, so I can try not to be unselfish. I can live my life as a hermit, whatever. Love your neighbor as yourself means i got to go out of my way and actually meet these people. See, that's a positive command. That's a go and do. Very different than unselfish. Why is that subtle shift so important? Well, Screwtape's going to tell you. Thanks to this, if you, can, if you can get people as Christians to say, that's not our duty. Our job is just to be unselfish. Whoa, 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 whoa. Thanks to this, you can, from the very outset, teach a man to surrender benefits, not that others may be happy in having them, but that... He may be unselfish in foregoing them. That is a great point gained. Now, everybody see the point? You see how the motivation and focus shifts. Instead of, I'm going to be unselfish so that this poor kid whose house burned up in the fire can be blessed, I'm going to be unselfish so I can really feel good about how unselfish I am. That's two totally different deals that Satan has managed to switch just by switching up these words. That's his point. Now, the rest of the paragraph, we can move quickly. It's Lewis's observation on how this especially plays out among men and women. I will leave it to you to determine if you think Lewis is right. Whether or not you agree there's a gender difference, at least I want you to see how a demon will always tempt a human to notice how much you are doing to serve others <laughs> and why you can't figure out why other people can't appreciate all your unselfishness. Here we go. Another great help. Where the parties concerned are male and female is the divergence of view about unselfishness, which we built up between the sexes. A woman means unselfishness, chiefly taking trouble for others. A man means not giving trouble to others. As a result, a woman who's quite far gone in the enemy's service will make a nuisance of herself on a larger scale than any man except those whom our father has dominated completely. And conversely... A man will live long in the enemy's camp before he undertakes as much spontaneous work to please others as a quite ordinary woman may do every day. I thought I might get an amen there. He's saying a guy's got to be saved and grow in Christian maturity for years and years before he does the amount of housework an average lost woman does daily, is what he's saying. Still no amen? Okay, all right. I would have thought that was uh, self-evident. And, then, and the reverse is true. The man's job is he thinks of being unselfish is I don't cause anybody trouble as opposed to getting up and serving or whatever. Okay, anyway, 
thus, while the woman thinks of doing good offices and the man of respecting other people's rights, each sex, without any obvious unreason, can and does regard the other as radically selfish. Okay. Whether or not you accept, again, the gender difference, you, you see how the demons want to get humans to a point where I'm being really unselfish. Why don't they appreciate my unselfishness? And at the exact same time you're being unselfish to, the, the, the person you're being unselfish to, they think the same thing about you. I don't understand. And when two people both think that they are bending over backwards for the other, all sorts of domestic troubles explode. Because you both have the expectation, you should at least meet me halfway. Did you know that's why when I talk to married couples, I never say it's 50-50. I never say it's 50-50. Because they imagine a football field where they start on one goal line, their spouse starts on the other, and they say to themselves, well, when it comes to chores, when it comes to raising kids, when it comes to all these things, we're just going to meet halfway. We're going to go 50-50. The problem with that is nobody ever agrees where the 50-yard line is. Everybody thinks, I've gone 80. You're not even gone 10. And meanwhile, they're going, are you kidding? I'm at the 99-yard line here, man. You can't even come one yard. So I tell people, in marriage, and in a Christian marriage, there's no 50-50. There's 100-100. you got to be willing to unconditionally go all the way. And the 50-yard line on that day is wherever you cross. So if you're willing to put everything you got into the marriage, and your spouse is willing to put everything you got in the marriage, some days it will be the case because you, you've got a little lighter workload, or because you're in a better mood, or because you've got a little more bandwidth, you are able to pull more of the weight. And you did go to the 80-yard line, and you met your wife at the 20. But you know what? The next week, What's going to happen? You're going to get sick, or you're going to have a rough week, and you're barely even going to be at a one-yard line, and you're, going to, and you're doing all you can, and she's going to meet you at the 99. That's a Christian marriage. See? This paragraph reminds me of the book, and I, I give this out in premarital counseling, His Needs, Her Needs. It sold like a bazillion copies. I don't know if you know the book, His Needs, Her Needs. But if you're married, it might not hurt you to get a copy of this book. And what he does is he says... And I think he's right. Gary Chapman wrote a book called The Five Love Languages, which is like the greatest marriage book, all-time bestseller of all marriage books in the history of marriage books, Christian or secular. He, he says roughly the same thing. What he says is, in, in His Needs, Her Needs, he says couples tend to get good at meeting the needs that they would want met. So the man gets really good at meeting the needs that they want met, and the woman gets good at meeting the needs that she would want met. The problem is those aren't the same needs. So the goal is not to get good at meeting the needs you would want met. Get good at meeting the needs your spouse would want met. And it's just, you know, you're sitting there going, I, I don't understand. I do not understand. I got her the 15 horsepower wheat eater. I, I don't get it. I could have cheaped out, but I didn't. And I sacrificed. And why this woman won't appreciate it, you know? And she's like, I'm willing to watch Hallmark for hours. I don't understand. You know, I'm obviously caricaturing these um, uh, because some of you are like, you know, I'd like a weed eater. I wouldn't mind, you know, right? Uh, that, that's fine. But the point is, both think they're being un... Ah, here it is. Both aren't actually in doing this. Charity, love, being willing to sacrifice for the benefit of that person. You love that person. This is uh, celebrating your own self-righteous virtue of being unselfish. Very confusing. That's what Screwtape is trying to do, is trying to confuse us. On top, let's keep reading. On top of these confusions, you can now introduce a few more. The erotic, now remember, he uses the word erotic, not like we do, not to mean explicit. It means referring to eros love, romantic love, as opposed to brotherly love or unconditional love. You may have heard phileo and agape. He's, he's using it adjectivally. The erotic enchantment, in other words, being in love, uh, infatuation, produces a mutual complacence. That word means desire to please. I don't know if I said it right. I had to look it up. In which, so this desire to please, in which each is really pleased to give in to the wishes of the other. So in other words, being in love, yeah, they no, what do you want to do? No, what do you want to do? Yeah, but they also know that the enemy demands of them a degree of charity, which, if attained, would result in similar actions. So he's saying being infatuated sure looks like charity. He says, yeah, and if you can do that, two things. One, you make them think that they're already a lot more charitable than they are. And two, in their first years of dating and marriage, they now set the bar incredibly high for the standard of how they're going to serve each other for the rest of their marriage. Almost impossibly high. Look, you must make them establish as a law for their whole married life that degree of mutual self-sacrifice, which at, as present sprouting naturally out of the enchantment, but which, when the enchantment dies away, they will not have charity enough to enable them to perform. And they won't see the trap. 
since they're under the double blindness of mistaking sexual excitement for charity and of thinking that the excitement will last. In other words, they're not really being charitable love. They're head over, head over heels in love. And they're going to think, so, so they don't notice that they don't have this yet, and they're going to set their expectations impossibly high. You see what happens from there. Eventually the infatuation wears off, and real mature Christian love is not yet formed. So what's it going to be? We're kind of in this, in this dangerous zone. Is, is the infatuation going to turn to charity? Is it going to turn to unselfishness? And that's where he wants to get it going this way to unselfishness. Here he writes, When once a sort of official, legal, or nominal unselfishness has been established as a rule, a rule for the keeping of which their emotional resources have died away. See, they're no longer head over heels in infatuation love. Now it's just Tuesday morning. You know, just an average day in marriage. And their, you know, their spiritual resources have not yet grown, so they're not yet at that spiritually mature place. The most delightful results follow. In discussing any joint action, it becomes obligatory. Now, this next part, you'll either get it or you won't. You've either done it, you've been there. <laughs> It becomes obligatory that A should argue in favor of B's position, supposed wishes and against his own, and B does the opposite. Come on, haven't we done this? Instead of just doing what we want, or saying what we want, we put on this veneer of self-righteousness where instead of just going about my day, I always position myself as, no, no, let's do what you want done. Because we always do. And I'm always so willing to give in to what you want. I'll just be here as a martyr. <laughs> and now, and now, I have you in my debt. See, now you always owe me, because I'm always doing it for you. So my starting position is not, hey, here's what I want to do. It's, here's what I'm going to guess you want. I'm going to try to jump that, so that we're always doing what you want. So instead of just saying, listen, I want to go see Top Gun tonight, and I want to play golf tomorrow. Or I don't care, I can do top golf tonight and shoot guns tomorrow. Either way, however the arrangement of these words. But you know what? Instead, I just want to stay home and watch Hallmark because, you know, not because I care about the spouse, but because I want her in my debt. And really what I want is unselfishness. It's about me. Really, it's about me. And meanwhile, she may be doing the same thing in reverse. To the point where, look what Lewis writes. Screwtape says, it is often impossible to find out either party's real wishes. Tell me that I'm not the only one who's ever been in this point where you don't even... With luck, they end up by doing something that neither wants, while each feels a glow of self-righteousness and harbors a secret claim to preferential treatment for the unselfishness shown and a secret grudge against the other for the case with which the sacrifice has been accepted. Oh, excuse me. Is it guard against the other for the ease with which the sacrifice has been accepted. So good, right? It's like, as long as well, we're always doing what you want. And so now, I get a glow of self-righteousness. Secretly, I feel like you're getting preferential treatment. I get the benefit that I've been more unselfish. And I get a secret grudge for how easily you went right along with what you wanted to do. I get all that wickedness just by always doing what you want. This idea of unselfishness. It's good, right? To me, Lewis shows his mastery of how fallen sin nature works. Because you read this and you either have a knowing smile or you go, I've, I've never heard of this. And if you've never heard of this before, it's because you, you're so holy and like, good for you. And I wish I could be like you. But when I read this, I was like, oh, man. So even when it, well, this is great. Later on, you can venture on what may be called the generous conflict illusion. Now, this game is best played with more than two players. In a family with grown-up children, for example, something quite trivial, like having tea in the garden is proposed. One member takes care to make it quite clear, though not in so many words, that he would rather not, but is, of course, prepared to do so out of <clears throat> unselfishness. The others instantly withdraw their proposal, ostensibly through their unselfishness, but really because they don't want to be used as a sort of lay figure on which the first speaker practices petty altruisms. In other words, oh, no, 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 you're not going to get this one over on me. But he's not going to be done out of his debauch of unselfishness either, his, his perversion of unselfishness. He insists on doing what the others want. They insist on doing what he wants. Passions aroused. Soon someone is saying, very well then, I won't have any tea at all. And a real quarrel ensues with bitter resentment on both sides. <laughs> Here's how I know you'll either get this or you won't. Have you ever been on a beach vacation with large families all together? Kids all staying in a big house. It's better if you have grown children. And you had an actual, honest-to-goodness, full-blown fight. Like, 
tears were shed, fight over where you were going to go to dinner on a Wednesday night on your beach vacation. You'll either laugh knowingly or you won't. And here's the thing, the fight wasn't about not getting to go where we wanted. It was over the martyrdom of everybody trying to make sure they please the other. We always go where you went. You always have to get your way. And not only that, but this brings up the last 10 years of you always being selfish. And it's always the way in our family. Why can't we get along? We're supposed to be on vacation. And everybody's mad and leaving. Some of you are laughing. Others you are like, I don't understand you sinners. <laughs> you see how it's done, though? If each side had been frankly contending for his own real wish... They would have all kept within the bounds of reason and courtesy. In other words, if everybody had just said, stated clearly what they wanted. Okay, how many of you want to go to this restaurant for dinner? How many of you want to stay home and cook? How many of you want to do this? Okay, take a vote. Fine. We're doing this. Everybody go. Everybody be like, well, that's fair. But we don't do that. We want to make sure, well, I want to do what you want because I didn't want it. And I want to make sure that you know how unselfish I'm being. Well. But just because the contention is reversed and each side is fighting the other side's battle, all bitterness, which really flows from thwarted self-righteousness, and there's the word self-righteousness, obstinacy, stubbornness, and the accumulated grudges of the last 10 years is concealed from them by the nominal or official, quote, unselfishness of what they're all doing, or at least held to be excused by it. So they're all bending over backwards for others, leaves them blind to the fact that the other person thinks they're bending over backward for them. Each side is, indeed, quite alive to the cheap quality of the adversary's unselfishness and of the false position into which he's trying to force them, but each manages to feel blameless and ill-used itself with no more dishonesty than comes natural to humans. And uh, what's he saying there? It's very easy to see the speck in your neighbor's eye and somehow ignore the law that's coming out of your own eye. That's, that's what he's saying. So, a sensible human once said, and I tried to source this quote, I did a lot of research, and by a lot of research, I mean typed it word for word into Google, <clears throat> and nothing came up except this quote from Lewis. So, if anybody can ever source this quote, who's the sensible human who once said, if people knew how much ill-feeling unselfishness occasions, it wouldn't be so often recommended from the pulpit. It's pretty good. It's a pretty good line, uh, but I don't know who said it, but maybe it's just... Um, Inventment quote, but you see what he's saying. He's saying when people really started thinking long and hard about what this is, they wouldn't uh, talk about it that way. Now, listen, if I preach a sermon where I'm like, you guys should be unselfish, please don't email me like, oh, really? Isn't that just self-righteousness? It's very subtle, Tom, your affectionate uncle, church member. Like, I, I, yeah, you're right. You, you got me. Uh, but you see his point. And here's another quote I can't source either, but it's really funny. And again, Oh, she's the sort of woman who lives for others. You can always tell the others by their hunted expression. <laughs> and that's great for anybody who's ever been around what we'll call an overhelper. We all have overhelpers in our lives. And it's like, oh yeah, they live for others. And you're like, yeah, you can tell because of the fear on the face when she comes around. Like, I'm here to help you. Like, ah. And it's great. All this is subtle and it's elaborate. And screw tape admits this is playing the long con, but it's worth it to it. As he writes, all this can be begun even in the period of courtship. So, young marrieds, good luck. A little real self. Now, why? This is interesting. He says, look, I know we're playing the long game here. A little real selfishness. What about actual real selfishness? Well, a little real selfishness on your patient's part is often of less value in the long run for securing his soul than the first beginnings of that elaborate self-consciousness, that that that." unselfishness, which may one day blossom into the sort of thing I've described. Some degree of mutual falseness, some surprise that the girl doesn't always notice just how unselfish she's being, can be smuggled in already. Cherish these things, and above all, don't let the young fools notice them. If they notice them, they will be on the road to discovering that, quote, love, a.k.a. infatuation, is not enough. That charity is needed, and not yet achieved, and that no external law can supply its place. That's a great line. You will never be able to legislate this. This comes from God. See? And uh, I think it's beautiful. And People are ambivalent sometimes about reading 1 Corinthians 13 at a wedding because they say, well, Paul's talking about spiritual gifts and that's not really the context. I love it. Because to me it's saying, listen, you guys are in love, but here's what charity looks like. Here's what real love looks like. And by God's grace and with his help, your marriage is going to go from love, infatuation, just being in love, to this real deep charity. 
And no law can give you that. The early Baptists who were not a creedal people, they didn't like a government coming in or, or, or a bishop or a, or, a, or a hierarchy saying, you have to believe this. They had enough of that in the, the high churches they left behind. And uh, uh, they, uh, they used the old Baptists used to say, no law but love, no creed but Christ. And there's some hints of that here. No external law can ever supply its place. And then he gives a, a, a last parting sort of shot. I wish old slum trumpet would do something about undermining that young woman's sense of the ridiculous. Your affectionate uncle screw tape. I think that last line is, apparently this, this girlfriend is such a mature Christian that she, I, I, I could be wrong here. Here's my, I'll give you the, my, this is my interpretation of what he means by that last sentence. I'm not entirely sure. I think what it means is she's a mature Christian and she is very self-aware of when Screwtape overplays his hand. So many times she'll be like, wait a minute, this is ridiculous. So in the case of what we're talking about here, she's with her, her boyfriend and it's like, wait, I'm trying to anticipate what he wants and here we are fighting because we both want to please the other. That's ridiculous. And they laugh about it and move on. And Screwtape hates that because it... He would rather they really get in a fight about it. Instead, she can see from a mile away, like, this is, this is of the enemy. Let's, let's, uh, so that's what I, I think. And he's really mad that Slum Trumpet won't do more to slow down her uh, Christian maturity. So to 26. I think if you can get these, uh, get these concepts, I think the letter falls into place. I think without understanding the use of those three things, uh, it's, it's tough sledding. So hopefully that'll... Uh, help illuminate. If you want to write down those three things in the margins of 26, and when you go back through screw tape, you'll be good to go. All right. Letter 27 is about answers to prayers, foreknowledge, predestination, and determinism. A little bit of science fiction thrown in there, too. So it's an easy one. Uh, <laughs> let's just call it, let's start with answers to prayers. Letter 27 is about answers to prayers. Uh, Wormwood is failing. I'll give a little intro comments. Screwtape is saying that, all right, the patient is praying, and his prayings are getting stronger because they're getting simpler. So if you can't keep him from praying in this way, try to get him to see the whole exercise of prayer as mechanical and pointless since, you know, look, whatever God has decided, whatever's going to be is going to be. So, you know, why pray, right? Well, get the patient to start questioning, why pray at all? If God is all-powerful and He's all-knowing, then like, what, what really is the point? Why pray at all? Letter 27. <clears throat> I'll, I'll just say this here. Screw the Letters is technically not a book, book of apologetics. Apologetics uh, comes from the Latin word apology, Right? And an apology is not the way we use it. Apology is how we use it, is, is sorry. But apology, the Latin root is um, uh, defense, reasons. You might even say excuses, right? So and that, that's probably how we got the idea. Since nobody really says sorry anymore, we just give a list of excuses for why you shouldn't be mad at us, and that's our apology. You know what I'm talking about, right? Well, Sorry, I hurt you, but you gotta understand. I had a really rough day, and I, I just and I hadn't eaten, and I and I honestly I wasn't myself. It's like, well, then how could you be mad? You had a bad day. You hadn't eaten, and you literally were not yourself. I mean, you were you, were, you were transmogrified. Who could be mad at that? And I got off track. Anyway, apologetics. So, uh, so when they talk about apologetics, it is apologetics is is a Christian uh, uh, discipline where you give rational and thoughtful reasons for the faith. So there's a lot of real rational reasons to the faith, uh, to, to be a Christian. Um, there's a lot of really good, I would say this, there's a lot of obstacles people put up to being a Christian. Apologetics is a great way to smash through those obstacles and point out they're not really obstacles at all. Um, for example, if you're talking to somebody who is a, a true atheist, I don't believe in God at all, apologetics would be a discussion like, well, to me, it's, isn't it more rational that something came from something, something couldn't have come from nothing, could it? I mean, that's a really reasonable statement to me uh, that I've never heard a really good response from. And uh, so that would be an example, really simple example of some apologetics. You're giving reasonable defense. Okay, point is, uh, apologetics, Lewis is known for his apologetics, particularly his pop uh, apologetics, mere Christianity is the standard. So if you're not familiar with mere Christianity, one day we may try to tackle that one. Um, so Screwtape Letters is not apologetics. However, this chapter... 
will, will, I think, be helpful for anybody who has ever raised this question themselves. Maybe you're even in this study tonight and you're wondering, yeah, I've kind of thought that. If God already knows everything that's happening, why bother praying? Well, so this is, Lewis gets a little bit into apologetics in this in a really uh, helpful way, I think. So, let's begin. My dear Wormwood, you seem to be doing very little good at present. Boy, he's just getting, getting harder and harder on old Wormwood, isn't he? The use of his love, remember guys, uh, I pointed, I already erased it, uh, that he's back to infatuation. Yet the use of his love to distract his mind from the enemy is of course obvious. But you reveal what, in other words, he can't focus on his prayers because he's thinking about his girlfriend. But you reveal what poor use you're making of it when you say that the whole question of distraction and the wandering mind has now become one of the chief subjects of his prayers. That means you've largely failed. What's he saying? He's saying now when the guy is praying and he gets distracted, we've all been there, He's trying to pray, he's trying to pray, then he thinks about, oh, he's going to go on that picnic this weekend with his girlfriend, it's going to be awesome. He's like, wait a minute, I'm distracted. So what does he do? Lord, I can't quit thinking about that picnic. Would you help me to pray? I'm just going to bring that and lay it at your feet. I'm going to take the distraction and just bring that into my prayer and pray about it. Screw that, like, no! That's the worst thing that you could do from the demon's perspective. No, no, no. When this or any other distraction crosses his mind, when you read this, you should think, okay, what can I learn from this in my own praying? When a distraction crosses his mind, the devil says, you ought to encourage him to thrust it away by sheer willpower and try to continue the normal prayer as if nothing had happened. That's such demonic advice, right? Because we all know that. And I would like everyone in the room, please, right now, do not think of a pink elephant. Please, anything but. Don't think of a pink elephant, right? Whatever you do, push that as far away out of your mind. Don't do it. Don't do it. Please promise me you're not right now in any way thinking of literally pushing a pink elephant to the corner of your mind, right? So the distraction now is even harder to push away. So the demons are like, yeah, anytime you're praying, uh, John Ortberg calls them the monkeys jumping around your head like a jungle of monkeys jumping around. It's like, where was all this distraction five minutes ago? It's only when I started praying that, started praying that I get all these distractions. He says, hey, instead of trying to force them out, bring them one by one before the Lord. Make them the content of your prayer. If something crazy enters your mind, and you say, Lord, you know, I'm trying to, you know I'm trying to pray to you right now in this moment, and this crazy thing's in my mind. You can see inside my mind. You know that. Lord, help me to pray like I should. Or maybe it's something like, well, maybe you want me to pray about this. And so I'm going to, Lord, I'm going to, God bless the pink elephants, or whatever it is, right? Okay. Once he accepts the distraction as his present problem and lays that before the enemy and makes it the main theme of his prayers and endeavors, then so far from doing good, you've done harm. Get your highlighters out for this sentence. You ready? Underline this one. Anything, even a sin, which has the total effect of moving him close up to the enemy, makes against us in the long run. It's a great line. He causes all things to work together for good. Don't you see? You're seeing this over and over and over in screw tape letters. He really doesn't care what happens to you. All he cares about is how you're going to react. Is it going to move you closer to God or closer to what screw tape calls our Father below? Everything is just material. It's just raw. Everything that happens to you is just raw material. It's how you react. And even a sin, if it even if you, like, like I always think about the older brother and the prodigal son. I don't want any family to have a prodigal child. I really don't. But that prodigal son living that crazy life to put him in the pigsty. If in the end, like, God's grace reached him there and he was brought back. Versus the older brother who never, like, realized he was all along spiritually in the same position. Uh... That, that's what Lewis is talking about. Even a sin, if it has the total effect of moving it closer to the enemy. Now, sin does not move us closer to the enemy. What he's saying is uh, Genesis 50 type stuff, where Joseph looks at his brothers after the whole soap opera of Genesis, and he says, what you intended for evil, God has intended for good. So we can't keep him from praying, what should we do? And you've heard this in the book before. Get into, you've heard this over and over again. If you can't keep him from praying, get him to spiritualize his prayers. Yeah, you want to make prayer boring and ineffective? Start spiritualizing your prayer. And instead of just praying for what's on your heart, start praying for what you're supposed to pray for. <laughs> Here's what Scrooge Dave writes. A promising line is the following. Now that he's in love, a new idea of earthly happiness has arisen in his mind. And hence, a new urgency in his purely petitionary prayers. That's prayers where you're asking stuff. About this war and other such matters. Now is the time for raising intellectual difficulties about prayer of that sort. 
False spirituality is always to be encouraged on the seemingly pious grounds that, quote, praise and communion with God is the true prayer, which is basically another way of saying, just sit there and empty your mind, and now you're really praying. <laughs> well, on the, on the, and it sounds so pious, but he says it's, if we can trick them into thinking that's real prayer, humans can often be lured into direct disobedience to the enemy who, in his usual flat, commonplace, uninteresting way, has definitely told them to pray for their daily bread and the recovery of their sick. You will, of course, conceal from him the fact that the prayer for daily bread, interpreted in a, quote, spiritual sense, is really just cruelly petitionary as it is in any other sense. Uh, really big sentences here, but all he's saying is, don't ever forget how crude, in a way, how crudely basic and petitionary the Lord's Prayer is. It almost sounds like something a little child could pray. It almost sounds like exactly the way little kids pray. Who is unashamed to ask for what they want? They don't care about how pretentious they sound. They don't care about how foolish they sound. And they don't care how outlandish the request. Who does that? Kids. Exactly. Well, yeah, some of us still. We, we, we Kids, right? Who is willing to... I don't know too many adults when they pass a Dairy Queen that will scream until the driver stops the car. <laughs> okay, maybe a bad example. All right, that's fair. That's fair. But kids, man, kids will scream till daddy stops the car. It's like Jesus told the Sermon on the Mount and gave the Lord's Prayer and said, ask what you want. It's like he told his disciples, when you're praying for something, scream until your heavenly daddy stops the car. And the Pharisees said, that is beneath us. Why? Because prayer should be more spiritual than that. And Jesus is like, come here. Come here, grace in the kingdom of heaven. Come here. Me? Judas like, Judas like probably me. He says, nope, you. Little kid's like, yeah, you, come here. Unless you change and become like this little child who never entered the kingdom of heaven. I tell you, whoever humbles himself and becomes like this child is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because they're not ashamed to ask. They're not looking for what the right prayer is, or spiritual prayer. So when we get all spiritual and we ask for stuff we think we're supposed people say, I'm bad at praying. Whoa, 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 what do you mean by that? Well, I never know what I'm supposed to pray for. Well, God never asked you to pray for stuff you're supposed to pray for. He asked to hear from you. So talk to him. Tell him exactly what you want. Leave it in his hands whether or not he'll give it to you. But we need to be a little more childlike in our prayer. Not childish, but childlike. Uh, Mark Twain, in his book, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, there's a great... Uh, it's hard to know what to do with this because Twain was obviously firing shots at religion, but to me, it's ironic. He's mocking pretentious spiritual praying, but ironically, Jesus would have mocked it too. So Twain thinks he's so... Ah, whatever. I'll just read you the quote. I thought it was pretty funny. This is Huckleberry Finn. Then Miss Watson, she took me in the closet and prayed, but nothing come of it. She told me to pray every day and ask, and whatever I asked for, I would get. But it wasn't so. I tried it. I, once I got a fish line, but no hooks. But what ain't good to me without hooks? I tried for the hooks three or four times, but somehow I couldn't make it work. By and by, one day, I asked Miss Watson to try it for me. She said I was a fool. She never told me why, and I couldn't make out why. I couldn't make out no why. <laughs> yeah, this is so great. <laughs> There's Huck Finn. Ask whatever you want. Okay, Lord, I'd like three hooks. Right? So I sat down one time back in the woods and had a long think about it. And I said to myself, if a body can get anything they pray for, why don't Deacon Wynn get the money back? He lost on pork. Why can't the widow get back her silver snuff box that was stole? And why can't Miss Watson fatten up? That apparently was a good thing back then. No, says I to myself, there ain't nothing in it. And I went and told the widow about it. She said, well, the thing a body could get by praying for it was spiritual gifts. So that's too much for me. She told me that's what she meant. I must help other people and do everything I could for other people and look out for them all the time and never think about myself. This is including Miss Watson, I guess. I went out in the woods and turned it over in my mind a long time. I couldn't see no advantage about it except for the other people. So at last, I reckoned I wouldn't worry about it anymore, and I just let it go. <laughs> this is a great scene where, where uh, Huck is basically saying, well, I, you know, they asked me to ask what I wanted, and then they told me, no, 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 you're supposed to just pray for, like, spiritual stuff. Uh, Twain is a very shrewd writer. I don't doubt his brilliance. I just want to point out, I think he's picked a straw man argument. And I think he's tearing down the pretension in prayer that Jesus would too. Ironically. And Twain doesn't realize how aligned he is in that scene with Jesus. I can see Jesus uh, telling little Huck Finn, keep asking, seeking, and knocking. And just trust me, if I don't give you the hooks, there's a reason. And with Huck Finn, there probably was a really good reason why he wasn't armed with such things. Anyway, so what 
But, but to, to, to Huck Fed's objection, and to anyone who might ask, why pray? Well, to that we now turn. Since your patient has contracted the terrible habit of obedience, uh, in other words, he's probably going to keep praying, he'll probably continue with such crude prayers, whatever you do, but you can worry him. Worry means make him anxious. With the haunting suspicion that the practice is absurd and can have no objective result. Oh, and don't forget to use the heads I win, tails you lose argument. Everybody know the heads I win, tails you lose? It's an old comedy routine, right? Yeah. Hey, you want to play a game? Yeah. All right, we'll play for a dollar a flip. All right, here we go. What's the game? Heads I win, tails you lose. You ready? Yep. All right, here we go. We're going to flip a coin. Heads I win, tails you lose. You ready? All right. Call it in the air. Heads. Hey, heads I win. That's great. I pay up. And then the next one. I call it in the air. Tails. Oh, sorry. Tails you lose, right? It's heads I win, tails you lose. I'm so sorry. Wait a minute, right? So no matter what happens, you can't win. Uh, uh, he, he, here's how he applies it to prayer. Heads I win. If the thing he prays for doesn't happen... Well, then that's just one more proof that petitioning prayers don't work. Tails, if it does happen, he will, of course, be able to see some of the physical causes which led up to it. Well, it, it, therefore, it would have happened anyway. And thus, a granted prayer becomes just as good a proof as a denied one that prayers are ineffective. Heads on win, tails you lose, you see? So, what is the answer? What is Lewis's answer to why pray? And here's where, here's where he gets almost full-blown science fiction. I will intro the paragraph then I will just read it, and I will not comment on it. I don't know that I could comment on it and offer much help, even <laughs> if you asked me to. All I'll say is, basically, I think Lewis is saying to anyone who said, yeah, but it doesn't matter what we pray for, it, you know, or, or, or for that matter, do we even have free will at all? To say that is to put God in the same space-time box that you live in, but God is not bound by time or space. So what if from God's perspective, all of history, thousands of years if you're a young earth creationist, millions of years if you're an old earth creationist, either way, it, 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 all of time, what if it's experienced by God right now in one eternal present moment? See, as humans, we have the past, the present, and the future, but God has an only present, if you will. If that's true, if anything like that is remotely true, then like, mind blown, and the whole question of free will and praying and all that gets blown up. Because God is currently right now watching millions and millions of requests and millions and millions of outcomes all at the same time. You say, well, that would be impossible. Yeah, for you as a human. But why should it be impossible for God? God is God. So that's his answer to it. I offer it to you. Here we go. You, being a spirit, will find it difficult to understand how he gets into this confusion. So in other words, whatever the answer is, it's obvious to the spirit world. We're the ones that are like, I don't, I don't know. But you must remember that he, he takes time for an ultimate reality. See, and we do too. That's why we want to be out of here by seven. You think time is, a, is an ultimate reality. He supposes that the enemy, like himself, sees some things as present, remembers other things as past, and anticipates others as future. Or even if he believes the enemy doesn't see things that way, yet in his heart of hearts he regards as a peculiarity of the enemy's mode of perception. Now, he doesn't really think, though he would say he did the things as the enemy sees them are things as they are. If you try to explain to him that men's prayers today are one of the innumerable coordinates with which the enemy harmonizes the weather of tomorrow, he would reply that then the enemy always knew men were going to make those prayers. And if so, they did not pray freely, but were predestined to do so. And he would add that the weather on a given day can be traced back through its causes to the original creation of matter itself. So the whole thing, both on the human and the material side, is given from the word go. What he ought to say, of course, is obvious to us, that the problem of adapting the particular weather to the particular prayers is merely the appearance at two points in his temporal mode of perception of the total problem of adapting the whole spiritual universe to the whole corporeal universe. That creation in its entirety operates at every point of space and time, or rather that their kind of consciousness forces them to encounter the whole self-consistent creative act as a series of successive events, why that creative act leaves room for their free will is the problem of problems, the secret behind the enemy's nonsense about love. How it does so is no problem at all. For the enemy does not foresee the humans making their free contributions in a future. He sees them doing so in his unbounded now. And obviously to watch a man doing something is not to make him do it. So guys, see, it's really simple. <laughs> I don't know. Obviously, he's saying, look, at least allow for the fact that God is not bound by your time. 
And if that's true, if God is not bound, then he's not really foreseeing anything. It's all happening in one unbounded now. And he can do that. He can take the prayers of past, present, what we call past, present, and future, and it's all happening in his now. And now the whole question of, of, of determinism is flipped on its head and thrown out the window. So that's may not be an answer that is satisfying to you on this question, but you must admit, to be fair to Lewis, I think you must admit that is an answer. That is one way to answer that objection. I personally find it compelling. You may not, but then you must come up with uh, uh, your own. It may be replied that some meddlesome human writers, named, uh, notably Boethius, I have not, confession, I have not read this guy, but apparently he's let this secret out, so apparently Lewis got a lot from him. But in the intellectual climate which we have at last succeeded in producing throughout the Western Europe, you needn't bother about that. Only the learned read old books. Hey, guys, we're reading a book that's 80 years old. You are the learned. You're like, I am? Yes. A demon said so. All right, you're right, you're right, you're right. It's bad. Only the learned read old books, and we have now so dealt with the learned that they are of all men the least likely to acquire wisdom by doing so. We've done this by inculcating the historical point of view. The historical point of view, put briefly, this is good, it's a good one to end on, means that when a learned man is presented with any statement in an ancient author, the one question he never asks, oh man, I wish every university professor in America would hear this sentence. The one question he never asks is whether it's true. He asks who influenced the ancient writer, how far the statement is consistent with what he said in other books, and what phase in the writer's development or in the general history of thought it illustrates, and how it affected later writers, and how often it's been misunderstood, especially by the learned man's own colleagues, and what the general course of criticism on it has been for the last ten years, and what is the quote present state of the question? Did you ever ask, is what he's saying true? You know, we're asking all these questions. Is it, well, what was it informed by? Who was influenced? Is it true? To regard the ancient writer as, you know, a possible source of knowledge to anticipate that what he said could possibly modify your thoughts or behavior, well, this would be rejected as utterly simple-minded. Uh, utterly simple-minded. And since we cannot deceive the whole human race all the time, it's most important thus to cut every generation off from all others. For where learning makes a free commerce between the ages, there's always the danger that the characteristic errors of one may be corrected by the characteristic truths of another. But thanks be to our father in the historical point of view, great, great scholars are now as little nourished by the past as the most ignorant mechanic who holds that history is bunk. Your affectionate uncle Screwtape. You ever heard history is bunk? You know who the ignorant mechanic who said that is? Anybody? Henry Ford. And Lewis takes a little shot there. Henry Ford, the American auto mogul. Technically, he said history is more or less bunk, but it was too late. He gets quoted and credited, history is bunk, and so Lewis calls him the ignorant mechanic. What's he talking about? Uh, we have to cut one generation off from the other. Let me ask you something. What do you do when you got lettuce in your teeth, and you've gone the whole day with a little piece of salad right there in your teeth, other than be furiously angry at all the people who could have told you and chose not to and call them bad friends, right? What's the problem with the lettuce in your teeth? You can't see it. You know who can? Other people. What would you do culturally if our whole cultural moment has big old lettuce in their teeth? What if we're getting something really wrong? Who is outside our culture that could tell us? There's nobody. We're all in the culture. So who can tell us? I'll tell you who. Writers who lived 500 years ago. Lewis, Lewis wrote in, a, in, a, in an essay called On the Reading of Old Books. Listen to this line from Lewis. Listen, there's no magic about the past, but the only way to know if we're mistaken, the only palette is to keep the clean sea breeze of the centuries blowing through our minds, and this can only be done by reading old books. There's no magic about the past. People were no cleverer than they are now. They made as many mistakes as we, but not the same mistakes. So we can clearly see their mistakes. How could they ever believe this? But they can clearly see ours. And they can see the lettuce in our teeth, and we can see theirs because we're separated. Lewis admits we could do the same thing with books 500 years in the future, but we don't have access to those. I love only Lewis would be like, just, just in case you were hoping to get future books. It's funny only to me. Well, it's 6.59, so we've got 30 seconds uh, for questions. <laughs> well, you guys are good sports. I sure appreciate you. We've had fun this spring. We've got... Listen, we are leaning into the tape. Jackie, 
If you close us in a word of prayer, we are, man, we are right there. Two more Wednesday nights. So come back next week for 28 and 29. Jackie? Love you guys. Have a great week.